Hello, Charlie Gladstone here, and welcome to episode 11 of my Mavericks podcast. Um, thank you very, very much for joining me. Today's talk is with a Canadian businessman called Jim Astill. I, I won't tell you very much about him. He's a big business guy, very successful, a TED talker, but most remarkably, he has created an extraordinary program to uh, house Syrian refugee families in Canada. And um, he, in fact, contacted me and said, would I like to interview him? And of course, I thought, yeah, absolutely I would. Um, this is a really extraordinary, wonderful, good news story. So um, I spoke to Jim in early August from my office in Scotland. Um, because I only have satellite broadband in Scotland, I couldn't speak to him over Skype. So I had to do what young people might call uh, go old school and phone him on my landline. So I'm not convinced that the uh, quality is absolutely fantastic, but the story is well worth a listen. So without any further ado, here is a bit of a hero for you. Hello, Jim. Yes. Good afternoon. This is Charlie Gladstone calling from the UK um, to interview you. Hey, Charlie. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? Excellent. So I, I, I was staggered to learn um, that you'd done this um, extraordinary thing and spent one and a half million of your own dollars on rehousing 50 Syrian families of refugees. Um, what what catalyzed that and, and, and how did you go about it? Well, I could see what was going on, and it was troubling. There's a humanitarian crisis, and um, uh, one of the things I always say to myself, and I've said it in business all the time, is do the right thing, do the right thing. So it's sort of my mantra, do the right thing. So I thought, well, what is it that I could do? And Canada has a private refugee system where individuals are allowed to sponsor families. So I did the math and said, okay, great, I can sponsor 50 families. Ultimately, I ended up sponsoring 58 families. And uh, so I sponsored them and brought them to Canada. And so there's, a, there's actually a system in place in Canada, is there, that, that, that encourages people to do this? Yeah, there's a private sponsorship program which allows individuals to um, sponsor families. Um, and there's several advantages to that. One, it, the big advantage is... Governments can pay for housing, governments can buy you a bus pass, government can pay for food, but governments can't hire friends. And so in private settlement, we're responsible for housing the people and seeing that they get their bank account set up and their health card and their, um, and we have a huge checklist. So we do give them a bus pass, but we ride the bus with them because it's important to integrate. And success is families working, paying taxes, speaking English with some degree of integration. Yes. And so it's actually, it's, it's, it's doing more than just sponsoring them to come into the country and essentially verifying their, um, their credibility, but it's actually also helping them to find a job and to, um, to, to amalgamate in society. Is that right? That's exactly right. That, that's what success is. Um, like, part of success is just saving people from a horrible situation, but more of it is setting them up for a good future life. So that's a lot of it is the, the settlement. 
And, and why particularly were you drawn to the, um, to the Syrians? What, what was it that resonated with you with, with that situation? You know, there was nothing overly different about that situation. It just happened to be a major humanitarian challenge. And uh, so that's why I decided to go after that. It's sort of like, you may as well do something, even if you can't do everything. But did you specifically feel that there was a, there was a lack of action on globally or, or on behalf of Canada, or was it just the right time in your life? I, to I totally felt that Canada and the world was standing by and doing nothing. And I didn't want to grow old and say I stood by and did nothing. I mean, to use an extreme analogy, um, I, was, I went to a lecture when I lived in New York, and the rabbi said, Part of what caused the Holocaust to be as bad as it was is good people stood by and did nothing. Well, they didn't want to be one of those people who stood by and did nothing. So, that, oh, that's the other side of the world. And uh, so that's that's what inspired me. What, what, what was your sense? I mean, I, this may not be particularly something that you've considered, but what was your sense as to why the world had, had essentially abdicated responsibility from the Syrian crisis? Was it just timing of history and coming at a difficult time after all of the troubles in um, Iraq and the, the Gulf? Or, or was it something more significant, do you think? I think the world is weary of all of this troubling stuff. To some extent, many of the people there are somewhat different than we are. And the more different people are than you or I, the more people tend to say, oh, that's someone else, somewhere else. I think another issue is uh, the order of magnitude. And that's one thing you have to do in business is you may have a huge project you want to do, but you have to start and you have to do some little piece. And that's all I'm doing is one little tiny piece. You're not solving the whole thing. Maybe you said you have to solve the whole thing. Like that's an impossible, it's not an impossible job. It's a, an overwhelming job. And if you have an overwhelming job, your temptation is to go back to bed and put, pull the covers over your head, not do anything. So, so when, you, when you essentially decided to do this, I mean, did you have a clear plan as to what you were going to do? Does the sponsorship program suggest how you should go about things? Well, the sponsorship program has a framework, but I realized I was going to do it on a scale. And one of the things I do in business is I scale businesses. So I said, well, I'm going to have to do it differently like the, the program is really set up for one person or one family to sponsor one family. Well, that's a lot different if you're sponsoring your your sister or your you know your family, and it's a lot lot different. So what I did was I recruited 800 volunteers and set it up like a business. So I have a director of jobs, a director of housing, a director of health, director of education, and most importantly, a director of mentorship. So every family that comes in gets one Arabic-speaking mentor family and four or five English-speaking mentor families. And those, fa those mentor families have checklists to get their health card, get their bank account, get their library card, get their bus pass, ride the bus. And then we also do scorecarding, just like you do in business, say, every two weeks, how is the family adjusting? What do they need? Oh, they need you know, an ESL tutor. Oh, they need a dentist. They need, you know, what do they need? The other thing you have to realize is, like a business, it's goals. So what are the goals? Our goals are to get people to independence. So you want to you help people, but you don't want to 
make them dependent. Um, and I've had to have conversations with some of the volunteers who are very nice people that say, what are you doing driving the person to work for three months? Yes. Like have a driver. Yes. I don't have a driver. Like, no, they have to take the bus. Oh, but it's a kilometer walk to the bus stop. Well, what's the big deal? That's what we do. We walk a kilometer. As a matter of fact, I, I go to a gym to get in shape. They get in shape for, so it's... it's yes, and these were also people, um, presumably, who had who are very capable of existing in a very functional way in their home country and therefore are not incapable of doing it in, in somebody else's country, as it were. Well, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that's the difference between many of the marginalized, the homeless, for instance, in Canada. Being homeless in Canada is a psychological problem or a drug problem because the social supports are enough that if you were homeless, you would get enough that you could live modestly in a room and you would have food and you would have, you know, you'd have food and shelter and everything. But the people that end up living on the street yes. don't have the mental capability. And, and if we gave everybody who was homeless a house, three years from now, we still have homeless people because that's the way, that's the way it is. But these people, you're right, they were capable in Syria, they are, will be capable again, and they will be contributing members of society. And are all of your um, sponsees um, living in your city of Guelph? Yes, yes, I brought everybody into Guelph, and that's partly because that's where I could put my support network. Um, I had, um, one of them chose to move to Hamilton, which is maybe an hour away because they have family there, and one of them moved to Kitchener um, because they had family there. But which is maybe 20 or 30 minutes away. Um, but from a logistics point of view, I don't even want people to be an hour away because that that's hard on the volunteers. Like, you don't want to drive for two hours before you actually even have tea with someone. No, that's right. I mean, is so in, in logistical and financial terms, is, is your principal engagement with them a year long or two years long, or do you not really have any idea? Well, the contract that we have with the government is a one-year contract. But, of course, these people become friends, and you're with them for as long as it takes them to get independent. Um, now, our experience is, and even after they're independent, you're still, you still need to help them or be their friend. So they don't have full experience in Canada yet, even after a year. But um, they're very well launched. I mean, I have... Um, I'd say more than half of them have jobs and are supporting themselves within six or eight months. And within a year, like we, now we have 49 families working out of 58, um, and it hasn't been a year for three-quarters or 80% of those families. Um, they still need friends, though, because they're going to have a son or a daughter that wants to know how do, how do you go to university or, you know... Of course, of course, yes. And that, that, that's, I suppose, that, at that point, that becomes more of a sort of standard community um, engagement sort of network thing rather than that of the sponsor. We tell people we're sponsoring, we want them to live in Guelph for a year and that our support is better in Guelph for a year. I have had one person who's passed the year and he moved to near Toronto because... Guelph is a relatively small community. They, he came from a big city. He wants to move back. But he has a job. He's supporting himself. He's an engineer. It, it's a free country. And I'm not trying to keep him. I just wanted to make sure, you know, he's safe and launched. And I'm... Yes, of course. Yes. So what is the actual financial... I mean, what, what are you actually 
doing for this family in the first year financially, and, and what is the cost of that? Well, the, the cost is roughly $30,000 per family, but there's a table. It depends on how big the family is. Of course, a family of seven is uh, costs more, like 40000 a family of three costs 25000 Yes. It depends on the, on the family, and all you're doing is you're providing essentially the same amount as the family would get on welfare, and the family is not allowed to go on welfare for the first year. So that's the contract I have with the government, is these people will not go on, on welfare. So in, in addition to that, we set them up, and we're required to give them some starter money, so to speak, um, but we also can give, um, like, basically you need to be set up in an apartment or a house. And so it involves buying new mattresses, because you can't get people used mattresses, new pillows, um, uh, food. Like, if you move in, you have no food, you have to at least give them the starter food, you know, some salt and sugar and flour and tea and all, all this starter stuff. After that, you, you know, you, you get your welfare money, you do what anybody does and go to the grocery store and buy um, and then we you know coach them on where to get the best deals and how to shop and how to do things. I mean it, it, it's wonderful that you appear to have such an incredibly high success rate so far. What, what's your sort of feeling about you know those that will inevitably fall between the cracks of society normally and might not just be able to adapt? I mean how do you think that they you are able to help them in the long term? Well, there's different things about success. One part of success is people are safe here. So we've been successful just to bring people here because they're safe. And you're, they can also be successful if they have community. Um, there are a couple of people who may not be able to support themselves, just as there are a few Canadians who may not be able to support themselves, of and course. they may go on to the welfare system. Um, but Partly the reason I'm able to, we're able to get people jobs, is I'm a business person and I know everybody in my small community. Yes. And it's easy to twist people's arms. But that doesn't that that's wonderful, of course, and and I know that you are very much a, a you know a big figure in your um, business community. But it doesn't help, of course, if if they just can't cope or or don't do a good job or whatever. And do you think that emotionally, you will find it very hard if that if some don't succeed? I mean, if someone doesn't succeed, of course. I'm going to take it personally, and I also use persuasion to try to get people who bring who who we brought in to do the right thing. And people want to be able to help themselves, and people want to be able to be good employees. But they need to be coached on what is a good employee. But it's very tough when you have a 55-year-old who was a teacher in Syria, who doesn't speak English and doesn't learn English very quickly, because. You know, you can't really work in construction. You're not tough enough. You can't really even work in a manufacturing facility. You're not tough enough. Hard even to be a security guard because you know, they like people to speak a little bit of English. And so a large part of the focus is on English. The, but if you have a case where people don't want to work, then you have to appeal to their, do you appreciate what Canada did for you? Do you appreciate what I did for you? Do you appreciate what the volunteers did for you? And to some extent, if they're Muslim, there's a, it depends, most of the people are not very Muslim. They're not, you know, overly observant. But if you are, there's a concept in uh, Islam that it's not right to live off charity, capable of living, but supporting yourself. So you, to some extent, you shame people into it. But the other thing 
I did, which made my life easier, is I only brought in families. And most people want the best for their family. So the reason many people work very hard, they want their sons and daughters to have a better life. And, and so I made my life easy. I didn't bring in, uh, you know, I didn't bring in single mothers. No, no. Bad about, but they just wouldn't be able to support themselves because they have to, you know, look after their kids. And yes, so that, I don't think that, yes. I mean, I think you can't, you can't do everything and what you've done clearly is remarkable. So I, I'm intrigued by um, Canada's reputation because it feels to me that in a sort of post Trump election world, Canada has, has had a, a good spate of PR. I mean, do you think it's always been a, a liberal and tolerant country and that it's a great place to do something like this? Well, I love Canada and Canada is very good in general, but I'm telling you we're no different than any other country. And Canada has a history of not liking the current immigrant wave. So when the Italians came in, we didn't want them. When the Irish came in, we didn't want them. When the Vietnam boat people came in, we didn't want them. In World War II, we didn't want the Jews. So Canada is no different than any other country. The other thing is it's very easy for us to sit and magnanimously and say, oh, aren't we great? I'm bringing in 50 families, 200 people, 250 people, in a population of 130,000. Like, we're not, I'm not swamping the culture where if you take other places, even where you are, you're, the number, you're, the, the proportions are are tilting the are tilting things and making it so it's much much tougher if you, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I, I I do to an extent. Yes, I mean I think you, you again you're being probably overly modest, but I mean I do understand that. I mean, so so talking about this kind of notion of Canada being like everywhere else, which I think is fascinating because you know we've obviously heard a lot in Europe whether it's true or not about. Um, you know, liberal North Americans wishing to move from the USA to Canada. Um, have you have you in encountered any kind of um, opposition locally to this? I mean, it, it's a good news story, and, and it seems to have gone you know incredibly smoothly, and, and it's it's a remarkable thing. But have you come up against people who have said, you know, we don't want these people. We're we're struggling for jobs, as it were, here anyway. So we've had um, I've had some pushback. Most pushback is anonymous. And so if you read the articles, you get bad comments on the articles. They're comments, but they tend not to be real people. They're X, XYZ at Hotmail.com. And the people who say the positive things are, are real people. Now, the other fortunate thing we have in the city, well, we have basically full employment. So there is an almost unlimited number of blue-collar jobs. So I, you know, in a sense, this is why it's easy to say, oh, it's, you know, aren't we so great? But I'm not taking other people's jobs. There's jobs that aren't getting done. Anybody who comes here can get a job. So it's not as tough as, it's just not as nice. No, no, no. I mean, I think, I think in a lot of parts of Britain, of course, we've been partly struggling with um, our Brexit vote, partly because there's been a misapprehension that um, you know, people are coming and stealing on our jobs. But I, so I was curious as to whether that was relevant, but it doesn't sound like it is. It's not uh, particular. I think the other thing that helps the negative feeling is having a private sponsorship program. Because I understand if I drive past a project that is being paid by my tax dollars that I don't agree with, then I get stressed. And so if you saw 
some refugees on the street and said, hey, that's, they're living off of my dollar, you might be more stressed. But if they're living off of Jim Astle's dollar, then you have no it's not your money. I can spend my money however I want. Yes. I mean, if I have a yacht or a, you know, a second home or whatever, no. So when you came up with this amazing idea, did you discuss it with your wife and children before you acted on it? Or did you just think this is the right thing, kind of my motto is do the right thing, I'm going to do it? I didn't discuss it with them, I just did it. But, I'm, like, I'm for, that's the way I am in life. And that's the way entrepreneurs are. They, they, just, they just do it and don't ask for permission. Everybody gets in line and, and does it. If I, if I waited and asked for people, you'd never get anything done. And are your family now massively involved in this? Yes, they are. Yeah. So, so they're, they're, they, are they kind of, in many ways, sort of, you know, at the um, front of this and um, right in the centre of it? Yes, and, and the other thing is, my family is used to me and is used to this. <laughs> so it, it's normal for me to be helping people, and it's just been a normal thing to say, oh, by the way, I've got this guy who couldn't find work in Montreal is going to be coming in for a few days to stay with us and it's it's what we it's what I do it's this is not a I didn't sort of do something completely new or different out of uh, whatever the only reason I couldn't do this anonymously is uh, I need the volunteer base and it's about the settlement as much about the money so I originally didn't want any press but then the more I've gotten some press the more I said it's okay because it, it helps me get things done so now if I call a business person I don't know, they do know me. Yes. I mean, you've, you've had extraordinary press about it. It's a good news story and, and a wonderful story. I mean, so just sort of moving on to the, to the wider impact, um, do you, you, I think I've read somewhere that you feel like this has had a massively positive impact on your existing staff at Danby. Is, is, is that right? Do they feel, do you think, prouder to be there now? Yes. It's a uh, unintended consequence. Is uh, The staff are very engaged. And everybody always reads, how do you inspire millennials? One way to inspire millennials is to do the right thing. Basically, you see in action, and uh, like before I did this project, I would spend you know, thousands of dollars a month advertising to try to build positions. I don't spend anything for advertising, and I get 10 resumes a day emailed to me. And this has come from, the, from, from this work, has it? Yeah, yes, because people want to work for a company that has a broader mission, and I've had huge support from, like, truck drivers. I don't. We use our trucks to pick up furniture, deliver, and move people and stuff like that. But and I don't want, you know, you to drive our trucks. It has to be one of our truck drivers. And they've all done. They all do it happily. They apologize. I'm sorry. It's my wedding anniversary. I'm booked to go out, but I'll see if I can reschedule it. Yes, yes, and so that—that's—that's that's, you know that that in itself is is a, an amazing business lesson, whatever scale you're working on, I suppose. I I, I think so. It was—it's an unintended consequence. I. There... But you could have probably you could have probably it, it is, but you, but actually knowing what you know, I imagine that you could have probably guessed that it would have been had you thought about that's it. it. I, you're right. I just did. It never occurred to me, and it, I didn't think about it. And the other thing is, I had always done a lot of this quiet, a lot of this stuff, but fairly quietly, and just not as publicly, and not everybody knew about it, not all my employees even knew about it.
I think this is a, a fantastic story, and um, I get slight goosebumps when I think about this and Jim's modesty and the way that he seems to have made it all work. I wanted to talk to him a little bit about his business to give a little bit of context to um, to what he's done. He, he's almost so kind of um, profoundly self-deprecating that I'm, I'm not sure I managed to get much from him. But um, here he is anyway, talking about his business. So your, your business career, Jim, has, has been, I mean, you've obviously been um, incredibly successful and, and I loved your um, TED talk, which seemed to suggest that you um, w made a $2 billion company without an original idea. Um, and that was basically just based on, your, your notions were based on courtesy and a great work ethic. Is, is, that, is that really how you feel? Uh, absolutely. And partly the reason I tell people that is there's so many people sitting on the sidelines thinking, oh, I need to invent the next iPhone. Well, the fact is you can have a fine, you don't need to. If you look around your business, your community, 98% of the businesses don't have the rocket science idea. They just have an implementation of an existing idea. Yes, although you were a founding member of um, Research in Motion and BlackBerry, weren't you? So you kind of did invent the iPhone. Uh, well, I, I was an investor and a board member. I was a founding director on, on uh, BlackBerry. So, yes, I did. <laughs> and I'm famous for that, and everybody knows me for that. But that's not my real business. That was just a, uh, one of the things I happened to be involved in. I also say fail often, fail fast, fail cheap. And I invested in 150 companies, and everyone thinks I'm a genius because BlackBerry was one of them. But you don't know about the others. I mean, I've sold 25 of them, but at the end of the day, you, have, you haven't heard of 125 of them because they're kind of like not in business. No, it's really interesting, this, because one of the problems that we have with entrepreneurship in, in Britain, as you may or may not know, is that there is a real fear of failure. And, and in many ways, in, in um, Canada and the United States, it seems to be an absolute requisite for success. Right. I mean, the key is fail fast, Fail off, fail off and fail fast, fail cheap. So you have to get the cheap part right. You can't lose all your money, in my opinion. And uh, you also have to have an attitude where having a failure does not make you a failure. And having a failure means you are one step closer to success. Yes, yes. And, and you've written, you've written um, a, a, a couple of um, really big-selling books, haven't you? Yeah, um, on this, um, on the subject of business, um, I, I, do you, have they they've been successful? Am I right? Uh, I wouldn't say they're big selling books. I wrote one of them many many years ago on time management. I wrote one on marketing, which was a collection of the blog entries that I'd done. And uh, yeah, I mean, I've sold I don't know, maybe ten thousand, but it's not it's not who I am. I'm not a famous author or anything like that. I'm just a business guy who pontificates a bit. <laughs> Yeah, well, you're a business guy with good experience who pontificates a bit. I think, you, I think we can allow you a bit of pontification. Talking of books, I, I was intrigued by something that um, I saw that you said the other day, which was that you believe in books, um, but not in owning them. I mean, do you not have a desire? So what, what I think this was implying is that you either borrow books or buy them and, and pass them on. Do you not have a desire for a, for a library? Because I always think that's one of the most wonderful things that one can own. Like, I, I had kept some books, and then I got rid of them all because I had too many books. So I, I guess I should say I had a library. I was finding I wasn't rereading all the books. I kept a few of the ones I thought were more meaningful. 
But the fact is, the Guelph has a great library. I can always get any book I want. And as far as passing them on, I always pass on books because if I'm interested and inspired by them, I always want to share them and say, oh, here's a, here's a great book you might be interested in. I often put a post-it note in, you know, at page 60 or whatever and say, particularly this story or this chapter will be of interest. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, but there is, there is nonetheless, when you say, um, I believe in books, but not owning them, there is something is the not really wonderful about having those books in your house. They, I, I always think they kind of give off something. I mean, I sometimes read books on my iPad nowadays and then actually buy the book just because I want to have the actual proper book with me. I definitely like the proper book. As far as having them in my house, I have a weird theory around things, and that is, Having things cost me time. Having things causes me stress. So I actually don't like to have any things. And books are things. So it makes my house neater. I have so, I, it's not like I don't have any books. I'd, I'd have a couple of bookshelves of books, but not, I don't, I probably have 50 books or 40 books. I don't have, uh, um, I, and at one point I had a thousand books probably. I gave them all to a, a friend who has a library and loves owning the books. So when you, what's interesting about this is that you, you know, you've obviously been a hugely successful um, business person. I mean, how many people do you now employ at Danby? Um, we're only about uh, 300 here. Okay. What, what was the, what was the motivation for, I mean, it seems to me that the motivation for the majority of people in business is to make money so they can get stuff. What, what was your, I and mean, you, you may or may not agree with that, but what was your motivation for this kind of immense growth that you've had through your you know, various companies? So I believe if you are motivated by money, you will not be as successful as if you're motivated by creating something. So my motivation was to create a great company. And when I started, I just wanted to start a $100 million company. But when I was doing $50 million or $60 million, I said, oh, we better do $200 million. And then when we get to $150, oh, let's do $500 million. Let's do a billion. Let's do $2 billion. So I just keep moving my sites up. But it's about building a great company. It's not about making the most amount of money. Money is a byproduct of excellence. Money is a byproduct of building um, a business. And you need to make money because that spurs, you know, that'll, that allows you to grow if you don't make money. So I'm not against making money. You totally need to. But uh, if that's your goal and motivation, everybody I've seen that has that as their primary goal and motivation, they tend to fail. Yes, yes. But so do you think, Jim, that your, um, your refugee program will grow in the same way that you will see 50, however many it is, ref families that you brought in and you'll think, my goodness, I need to do 100, I need to do 200? Or do you feel like this work has, has got some sort of finite nature to it? No, I will be doing, I'll be doing more refugees. Right now the government has it on hold, but I've applied to um, open what's called a sponsorship uh, agreement holder organization to sponsor more families. Part of the focus of this will be reunification because it really tugs at the heartstrings to find someone who wants to bring their brother in or their sister in, and to some extent bringing in your sister, you tend to know you're going to get someone who's likely substantially similar to you in work ethic and integrity and, um, you know, willingness to try. This, this, yeah, this reunification thing's really interesting because I assume that the, 
the long-term goal of the majority of the refugees is, is to get back to a, a Syria when things are better. Is that, I mean, is that the case or do you think that they will just become so, um, so satisfied and comfortable and happy in Canada that they'll stay there? I think there's a number of them still want to go back, but the longer they're in Canada, the more they stay in Canada, and the more they develop their business and their roots in Canada, I think more of them will stay, and, they, and the reason they want to get their families is their families are in, in war or in camps and are in very hard times, and they love their families and want to help and bring their, uh, bring their families in. So many of them are seeing Canada as their future home for them and for their their children. And unfortunately, it's a situation where you can't go back in many cases. Like, I, I, I've had people show me pictures of their, you know, this was my business. And it's basically bombed out a shell. Yes, yeah, so, so without the support of someone like you, there's no chance of them getting a foothold on the ladder again in Syria. So, yeah, I guess so. Yes. Yeah. Have you been to Syria, Jim? I have not, no. And, and do you have any desire to go there? Or... Well, certainly certainly not now. Uh, ultimately, if, if peace were to come about, then yes, I'd be, uh, I'd be certainly open to it. But uh, it's, not, it's not top of my list. It's, uh, you know, I, I, and the bigger goal here would be peace. You don't want to deal with the injured and the wounded. You want to not have the injured and the wounded happen. One of the basic principles of business is try to stop any problems, like you want closed loop. If anyone calls customer service with a problem, you want to find out why is there a problem. Oh, we need to, you know, put better packaging so it doesn't get transit damage. Oh, we need to, you know, put a big red tag on the box saying don't plug in until you do this or whatever. So it's it's all closed loop. Unfortunately, solving the war and solving that politics is beyond my means and capability. Yes, yes. Have you had any... Um, thoughts of politics yourself or sort of international politics has this kind of spurred you on to try and make the world you know the, the wider world a better place or, or do I go back to the kind of the, the very sensible argument that you made earlier about micro um, management and doing what you can do on a small scale I mean there must have been one or two people who said you know what Jim you should you should go for parliament Part of it is I, I already have enough people who don't like me, so why would I want to do that? And you always have to look at where do you add the most value in life. So no, it's not on my uh, not on my list, but I never say never, just like I don't golf. It's that I don't yet golf. Anyway, that's, um, that's all for today. Thank you very much to Jim Astill for uh, agreeing to talk to me. I think it's been really interesting. I hope you do too. Uh, thanks very much to my friend Jim Friend for editing this so beautifully. And thanks also to Cherie for setting it all up for me. I hope that you enjoyed it and I will see you very soon. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>